We have been in a series called Expansion, and if you were here last week, uh, Pastor Callie brought an amazing word. I don't know about you, I like was taking pages of notes on my phone last week, so if you missed that, uh, you can always catch back up on YouTube. We have all of our messages uh, available online on YouTube, on our YouTube channel. So go check it out if you missed it. But we've been in this series called Expansion, and the subtitle of this series is Reaching Out to People Who Are Different Than You. Um, how many of you guys know that not all humans are created equal? Uh, we all have different personality types. We all have different quirks. We all have different vices. And when you get people together, uh, ten, time, 10 times out of 10, there's going to be differing opinions, right, about how we see the world and how we uh, relate to the world. And so this, this series is just all about reaching out to those very people. How do we? What's our posture? Um, and we're looking at the early days of the church and seeing how the early church, with that being their mission to expand to the world, how that kind of came about. And we've been looking specifically at this church leader named Stephen, um, who was really just kind of the first to recognize this need to expand beyond his own Jewish heritage. Stephen was this, this Jewish man that was uh, followed God uh, faithfully up to this point, but he recognized that God was doing something new through the chosen Messiah, Jesus, who died and resurrected. And as people came upon Jesus and saw him and, 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 and got to know him, but also realized that he did something miraculous by conquering death and conquering the grave, they're like, hey, we got to get this message out there. And one of the targets of getting that message out there was to the Jewish people, the ones who maybe were still holding on for this new Messiah to come, who expected it to come or expected him to come in maybe a different way. So last week, um, Callie preached a message called Same God different day, talking about that God's character never changes, but sometimes the methods do. I love what Callie said last week. She talked about Moses, and she talked about Moses being this amazing character, kind of when it came to the nation of Israel and their history, but she also brought up the point that the burning bush, although sometimes we expect the burning bush moment to happen over and over again, God to do things in the same way, the burning bush moment had to be new at some point, right? That people didn't expect God to uh, reveal himself through a burning bush. So there had to be a first somewhere. And God chose to reveal himself so specifically during that time for, for Israel's history and throughout the years of, of, of Israel leading up to this moment. And this morning, uh, we're going to lead into a, a message that I titled, Built Idolatry. Built Idolatry. Um, you ever own something that you cherish because it was uniquely crafted by human hands. When I think about, like, handmade stuff, and when I think about stuff that I just really, like, really cherished and kind of thought was, like, a big deal growing up, was when my grandma, she had this tradition, she would hand make quilts for all the grandchildren. So I actually still to this day have this handmade quilt. It's like, like blue's my favorite color, so she'd always do, like, favorite colors, and she'd always, like, like collaborate with the patterns. But it's like, what do we know as, like, a 10-year-old kid? Like, uh, whatever. But it was just so cool, right? It was like, I get to, like, I get to basically, like, choose my favorite color. And my grandma, she would just labor for hours and days and months. And I remember there was a season there where it was, like, all the grandchildren were happening, right? And she's like, I can't keep up, you know what I'm saying? Uh, but anyway, we, we all looked forward to it because it was, like, epic. It was like there was going to be this moment, like, on Christmas or our birthday where we would get the quilts, right? The one that was just kind of like handmade. It was handcrafted with us in mind, and she would put the date on it. And like I said, I still have this quilt uh, this day, but it's like, it's like, you know, on Christmas, on birthdays, it's like normally like kids are like super stoked about like video games or toys or whatever, but literally there was this tradition in our family where we just got so excited about this handmade piece of material, this quilt that she made for uh, each and every one of the grandkids. And I say that because 
for handmade stuff, kind of in our culture, it's kind of a big deal when, when it's crafted by hand. You don't see that as much anymore. That's kind of, that craftsmanship uh, it, it almost in a way is a dying art. So when it happens or when we see it, um, it's produced or it's marketed in a way where we're like, this is handmade. And this morning, unfortunately, we're going to be looking at a time in human history where handmade things weren't necessarily like the best. Um, for the nation of Israel, if something was handmade, they lived in such a paganistic culture, a culture with multiple different gods that people worship, that when something was handmade, there was always this susceptibility or this understanding that maybe this was something that people wanted to worship. Because people during this time worshipped all sorts of things. And if it wasn't made by the hands of God, and it was something man-made, it obviously was something that the people of God, the nation of Israel, rejected. For the Jewish people... Handmade typically represented idolatry, built idolatry, the title of this morning, meaning not made by God. And really, when it comes to idolatry, this is like the primal sin. We're going to talk about like sins of all sin for like the people of God. Idolatry was like the big one, like do not worship any gods before me. Like that's what God said, like in a booming voice from Mount Sinai, right? Like Moses as the person who delivers the Ten Commandments. Like we know this. Most of us are familiar because a lot in our pop culture we're familiar with Moses and this story and the Ten Commandments and all these things and these ideas that are historically Jewish, and it's interesting because you look throughout Jewish writings during this time, and, like, this was, idolatry was so absurd. Like, you, you read about the kind of the perspective that a lot of uh, people, Israelites or Jewish people, had concerning uh, idolatry. And it's like, it was just seemed so absurd. It seemed so ridiculous that somebody would handcraft or somebody would create something and then in turn worship that thing that was created. Like, it was really just like kind of mocked throughout Jewish history as we read in historical writings. Like, this was the big no-no. Like, this was the thing, like, we don't do this. As the people of God, like, idolatry, no, we do not worship all their idols because we understand that we are a nation represented by Yahweh, this God of the Bible that has come to redeem and bring the world back to the way it's supposed to be. So we're going to look at this point in Stephen's speech. And Stephen this early church leader, he's standing before this group of people who are accusing him of kind of hating on Jewish tradition. They're like, dude, you're, you're kind of a hater. Like, you're, you're, you're kind of downplaying the temple. You're downplaying the law. They're downplaying all these things that were such a big deal to their tradition. And he's trying to, he's basically standing before this council, and basically they're, they're, they're trying to convict him of because of him doing this, being a Jew himself, like, worthy of the death penalty, right? So he's standing before them. And he's giving this speech. And a couple of weeks ago, we, we looked, and he, he zoomed out. He begins this speech, and he kind of zooms out and gives them kind of a survey of, of the history of God and how God's related to human, through human history up to the point that they're in. And then last week, uh, Callie talked a little bit about Moses, this, this big leader, right, and how it's the same God, right? But Stephen kind of uh, portrays, like, this whole idea that God's doing a new thing. God does different things throughout human history. We can't expect him to do the same thing over and over and over again. And this morning, um, Stephen's getting to the, the topic as kind of the third and final act of his speech, talking about idolatry. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 7. That's where we're picking up this morning, verses 35 through 53. If you don't have your Bible this morning, no worries. We'll, you can follow up uh, along on the screen. Uh, so here we go. So Acts chapter 7, starting with verse 35, it says, So God sent back the same man his people had previously rejected when they demanded who made you a ruler and judge over us? So this is Stephen speaking about Moses, this um, epic, 
uh, guy when it comes to Jewish, Jewish history who helped be their savior and lead them out of slavery in Egypt. It says, through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush, God sent Moses to be their ruler and savior. And by means of many wonders and miraculous signs, he led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and through the wilderness for 40 years. Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Moses was with our ancestors, ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness, when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And there Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. They rejected him and wanted to return to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us some gods who can lead us, for we don't know what has become of this Moses who brought us out of Egypt. So they made an idol shaped like a calf, and they sacrificed to it and celebrated over this thing they had made. Then God turned away from them and abandoned them to serve the stars of heaven as their gods. In the book of the prophets, it is written, Was it to me you were bringing sacrifices and offerings during those 40 years in the wilderness, Israel? No, you carried your pagan gods, the shrine of Molech, the star of your god, Raphan, and the images you made to worship them. So I will send you into exile as far as Babylon. Our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan God had shown to Moses. Years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in battle against the nations that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into new territory, and it stayed there until the time of King David. David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. However, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asked the Lord. Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? You stubborn people. You are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet from your ancestors you didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law even though you received it from the hands of angels. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we come this morning um, and approach your word with, with humility, with open hearts, understanding that we as humans have the susceptibility to make the same mistake over and over and over again. We can be people that reject the history that's gone before us and, and just continue to make the same mistakes. But Lord, this morning, would you open our hearts? Would we be a generation of people that understand what you're doing in the world? Would we be people led by what you want to accomplish in this world? Would we be people in terms of our spiritual life that are, that are intentionally led into the things that you want to lead us into, God? Lord, would we be moved by you? Would we not be moved by religion or tradition, but God, would we be moved by the voice of you and the character of you and how you see the world that we live in? Lord, help us, shape us, change us this morning. Supernaturally come upon our hearts and, and speak. Lord, in the ways that we need it, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. So by reading this, we've read a big chunk of Scripture, and by reading this, just to kind of summarize, we can realize and understand that there's an idol or an idolatry issue going on when it comes to the history of the people of Israel. And what Stephen is pointing out is there's kind of a big idol. There's one that's kind of getting in the way. And this idol for the people of God during this time happened to be the temple. This temple that lived or was, was built in Jerusalem, the Holy Land, right? 
But for Stephen, he's, he's pointing out all these holes. He's kind of poking holes in this, this whole argument that people are making that, 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 that Stephen has, has been accused of kind of downplaying the role of the temple in terms of the future of how God wants to expand geographically, right? Glorifying of the temple was happening, and it was, being, it was happening in a way that was bolstering up the Jewish leader's rejection of Jesus, saying like, well, the temple is the reason that this couldn't be our Messiah, because we're expecting him to take place in the temple. We're expecting our Messiah to come and take the throne in our temple. We're expecting. There's a lot of different expectations. But once again, as Callie alluded to last week, same God, different day. Right? God is doing and stirring up a new thing in a new way by the way he revealed himself through Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man. So we're going to break this down a little bit this morning. And then hopefully, hopefully walk away with some, some kind of practical next steps. And, and so we're going to look back at, at the beginning. Acts chapter 7, verses 35 uh, through 36. It says this, So God sent back the same man his people had previously rejected when they demanded, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush, God sent Moses to be their ruler and savior. And by means of many wonders and miraculous signs, he led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, and through the wilderness for 40 years. So it's interesting to look at this character Moses. I love what Stephen's doing here. He's like, let's look at Moses before he was a hero. Let's look at Moses at the beginning. Let's look at Moses and who he was as just a normal Hebrew dude walking through, trying to advocate for justice in his community, and he points out the fact that people rejected him. People weren't down with Moses before he became this big savior and leader and person. The pre-savior Moses was rejected, even from the beginning, as somebody who tried to intervene in, in, in the middle uh, of the scuffle between these two Hebrew guys, right? He's, he's pointing out some flaws. But we know the post-savior Moses, this guy, was a legend, right? In terms of their corporate history and tradition for Jews, like, this guy was the guy. Like, this guy is our savior. He led us out of slavery from Egypt. Let my people go, Right? Like, this guy is a legend. But Stephen's going, hey, wait a second. It wasn't always that way. In fact, you guys, many of you guys rejected this guy. So he's, he's going to be kind of snowballing this, this idea of, of the rejection of this leader, Moses, who they cherish so much, right? Let's go on to verse 37. It says, Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. And who is he speaking of? He's speaking of Jesus. He's speaking of Jesus will be the one to come, this Messiah. The one you're awaiting, the, the Jewish people are awaiting this Messiah, but somehow they missed Jesus, right? Somehow they missed it because of all of this distraction that was happening. He's saying, get ready for him. Look for him. Have open hearts for him, right? Moses, out of his mouth, said that. you got to be on watch for, for, for the Messiah, the Savior to come. It's not just about me, but God's got a great plan. That through human history, it's going to culminate in the Messiah coming to save the world, to cover our sins, to, to, to take care of our brokenness, to take care of the gaping hole that exists within our human hearts, longing for something more in this life, longing to find purpose. He's like, you got to wait for him. And for us, understanding who this is, Jesus. This is Jesus being prophesied to come out of the words of Moses. How did they miss it? Yeah, let's keep going. Verse 38. Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness, when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And there Moses received life-giving words 
to pass to us. So we know that there's kind of this talk of angels, right? It's like we know in the burning bush that this was an angel of the Lord that came and appeared in, in this burning bush moment to kind of be like, hey, Moses, you're going to be the, the dude. You're going to be my representative. And Moses is like, what? Yeah, it can't be me, right? We know that the angel was present. But we also know, the, the Bible says that when he went up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, there was an assembly of angels as well. So it's alluding to the, basically this transition of, of prophetic words into the, into the hands of Moses, being this guy who, who's kind of become this mouthpiece on behalf of God, passing these words on to the people, carrying that responsibility, right? Let's keep going. Verse 39. But our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. They refused. They rejected him and wanted to return to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us some gods who can lead us. For we don't know what has become of this Moses who brought us out of Egypt. So they made an idol shaped like a calf. And they sacrificed to it and celebrated over this thing they had made. So you can make an argument like, oh, Moses is this legend, like pre-savior. But this is post-savior. We're talking, he's led them out of slavery in Egypt. He's led them to a new place. God is doing a new thing. And what do we have? We have this instance that we read about in the book of Exodus where before Moses even had the time to come back down and give the Ten Commandments, right? People had already created a God, a golden calf, and worshipped him. Right? And it's interesting because animal worship was actually very tied up in Egyptian history. So basically, Moses, I mean, for Stephen, he's going, it's just so interesting to think about this idolatry and understand for the people who just left slavery, it's almost like they've just turned back around and want to run back to it. To the traditions and the oppression of this culture and this people who are the ones who enslaved you. And he's not saying... I disagree with Moses, which is technically what he's being accused of. But you're against Moses. You're against the law. You're against the temple, Stephen. That's why we're going to murder you because these are charges that you're, you're bringing up all these things that really irritate us in terms of our tradition, right? But he's not disagreeing with Moses. But he's declaring that Moses was God's chosen leader. And right from the start, the Israelites actually preferred idolatry. Let's keep going. Verse 42. Got a little big... Got a big section here. Okay, here we go. Buckle up. It all was big, but we're breaking it down, but this is still kind of big. Okay, here we go. Uh, verse 42. Then God turned away from them and abandoned them to serve the stars of heaven as their gods. God's like, okay, you want to worship those gods? Try it. Try it. You know what I mean? Don't, don't, not a great life ver or verse or, or slogan. Try it before you buy it. You know what I mean? That'll get you into trouble, but God's like, hey, try it. Try this. You know what I'm saying? Like, try this in comparison with me. In the book of the prophets, it is written, was it to me you were bringing sacrifices and offerings during those 40 years in the wilderness, Israel? No, you carried your pagan gods, the shrine of Molech, the star of your god, Raphon, and the images you made to worship them. So I will send you into exile as far away as Babylon. As we read in some of the prophets, as we read in Israel's history, as you read the Old Testament, you realize that a lot of the woes, a lot of the, the kind of the cries out to God were during writings where people were actually in the state of being exiled into Babylon because of their issue of idolatry, right? Verse 44, our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. This tabernacle, this box, right, this, this thing that the, the people of God carried that represented and, and, and housed God's presence, right? They brought it with them. It was like this is like a, a temporary house. Like God led them in a pillar of smoke, but they, they noticed that like when they carried this tabernacle, it like housed God, and it's like wherever they took it, it represented kind of the presence and the power of God, right? 
So the, the ancestors, they carried that tabernacle with it wherever they went throughout the wilderness as they were wandering, as they were suffering from idolatry and serving other gods, but they're carrying the tabernacle with them. It's like, hey, it's a tabernacle. It's God's presence. He's for us. But simultaneously, they're getting into trouble. It was constructed according to the plan God had shown to Moses. Years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in battle against the nations that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into their new territory. Okay, well, we want God to be with us, so we're bringing it with us. And it stayed there until the time of King David. David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. It's like, well, the, the tabernacle's not good enough. Let's build a massive temple, right, to house God's presence, this representative of God kind of being present with us in this place, that, this land that he's promised us as we're multiplying and we're fulfilling what God's promised us from the early pages of the, books of Gen or the book of Genesis. It says, verse 47, but it was Solomon who actually built it. However, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, this is out of Isaiah, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? God's like, hey, build me a temple, go for it. But my temple, it's called heaven. My space, it's called heaven. It's a little bit beyond the reality that we experience here on earth. Can you house that with human hands? Can you house that type of a, a space? Obviously, no. He says, could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? You see what's happening here? Stephen's like arguing. He's using the argument in a way to kind of push the ball back, back in these people's court. He's like, wait a second, you guys are so caught up with this space and this temple. But, but here's what we need to remember about what God said about him and his space. His space is never limited within four walls. Yes, David planned the temple. Solomon built it. But Isaiah had already declared that since God, God's own hand makes all things, the idea that human beings can produce a handmade building which will somehow contain God is actually kind of blasphemous to think that a, that a temple would contain all that God is and has in his character and in his nature. It's interesting because you look through the history of Israel with the emphasis on this space, this physical space, and it was almost like they were so focused on what was built, this built house, this built space, this built box, this built location, while rejecting the God of that very space. They were so concerned about getting the tabernacle where it needed to go, building the temple in the right location, but along the way, their hearts weren't even with God. Their hearts actually were cheating on God with other gods as they dabbled in idolatry throughout their history, right? This wasn't God's ultimate desire. The temple was an accommodation to a human need. God desired pure worship, and God's form of worship that he desires, he does not desire institution. He does not desire place. He desires pure worship, people in their hearts connecting with him in a real way because he is a real God who cares about Humans. This wasn't his ultimate desire, but many times as we see in the Old Testament, we see people making poor choices and God condescending down to that level to make amends out of the mess, to come down to our level. Isn't that so true about God? Now, even in our life sometimes, we get ourselves into such interesting situations. But God doesn't hear that. 
God wants to interfere. God, God wants to intercept into those deep, dark situations, the ones where you're like, ah, this is, I'm far out there. I'm, I'm, I'm in some really, like, sketchy territory. No, like, God wants to meet you in those moments, in those seasons. If you're in one of those seasons or moments this morning, there's a God who sees you and cares about you and wants to rescue you. Come on, somebody. But this is the God we're talking about, the God of Israel, the God of the biblical history, right? The Most High doesn't live in shrines like this. Heaven is his throne, the earth is his footstool, and the entire cosmos cannot contain him since he made it all in the first place as creator, almighty creator God, as we learn about in the first pages of Genesis. Almighty, almighty creator God. God's plan, though, God's plan wasn't to be isolated into a specific space. God's plan was to come to the world and reveal himself, once again, not through an isolated box, but through human, humanity. Jesus coming to the earth, revealing himself by being one of us. Fully God, fully man. But for so many people who are expecting God to take his place, to be the rightful king and Messiah, to come into the temple, to allow this temple to be a sanctuary where it represents God's presence. God was doing a new thing that he wanted to unleash through the cross and by resurrecting from the grave. Come on, somebody. But for the people during this time, it was so easy to miss what God was doing and how God was choosing to reveal himself because they were so caught up on the tradition and the temple and the law and what God had done in the past. We get into verse 51. You stubborn people. Uh-oh. Stephen's, Stephen's getting after it now. You are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. Stephen's like, shame on me. Let's just flip through the pages of history and let's see the same thing that I'm being accused of is actually chock full of in your actual history. Israel's history, you know, for Jewish people. The story of salvation, right? And what Stephen's saying, he's like, this sounds more like a story of rebellion. This sounds more like a God that's trying to knock on the hearts of people, trying to get their attention. Meanwhile, their hearts continue to turn away from God. Humans continue to be humans, and they continue to rebel, and they continue to go along a path, desire things on a trajectory that gets farther and farther away with a, from a relationship with God and what that looks like and what God's doing and what God's stirring and what God's culminating through the prophesied Messiah that is Jesus to the point where they missed it. Stephen's like, hey, I'm standing with Abraham, that guy you, you love, the father of your faith, Moses, the savior, the leader, David, the greatest king in Israel, Solomon, the wisest to ever live, with the prophets. While you guys, in terms of your posture, you're standing with everybody who rejected what God was doing. You're standing with Joseph's brothers who trafficked him into slavery. Because of God's calling on his life. You're standing with the Israelites who rejected Moses. Right now, you're standing with the very people that helped Aaron build that golden calf. You're standing with those people right now. Because who I'm standing with, I'm standing in the presence of those who are faithful, who have been in tune with God and human history up to this point. 
Stephen's being accused of breaking God's law, but Stephen lets him in on a little truth. He's like, let me zoom out. Let me give this speech before you do anything. Let me zoom out and help you understand how you fit into this equation. Let me zoom out on God's plan for the world. Let me help you understand that, 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 that God is doing a new thing. His character stays the same. It's a different day. But let me also understand in the days of the past, those different days of the past, time and time again, you were unfaithful to God. And you gave in to the very idolatry that is many times mocked in this story of salvation and in this Jewish history and culture. Stephen shifts into sixth gear, right? Starts getting intense. But I want to, let's pause. Let's get back to the heart of God for a moment. And there's a scripture that I think is so helpful and so pertainable to this very instance in the scripture. Because like, man, Stephen, he's going off, man. John 1.17, let's look at this scripture. I love this verse. It says this in the Gospel of John. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So you have this contrast of the law and this grace and truth. I love it. Because Stephen... And here's what I'll say too. Grace and truth, I think those are in specific order for a specific reason. That we're called to be people that lead with grace. When you become lopsided on grace and truth, you can be really, really unhelpful. And actually a really damaging person. In terms of always just leading with truth. People needing to be banged on the head with truth, truth, truth. But I love it. Grace and truth. And I love it because that's been Stephen's method all the way up to this point. He's, he's led with grace. You look at the early part of this speech, Acts 1 in Acts 2 of this speech that he's giving, right? And you understand he's inviting them into a process, trying to help them understand, trying to relate at their level, trying to advocate for God and his character and where they fit into this larger equation. But at the same time, when you become a person so lopsided on grace where there's no truth, how do people take next steps? How do people engage with the things that God desires? And this is the point in the speech where he's led with grace, but now he's getting to some truth. And he's saying, you got to make a decision, you guys. Hopefully I've painted a clear picture for you guys to understand how your life fits into this picture that I've been painting. He's saying your next step is repentance. Repent. Turn back to God. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from the history that you're holding so tight to and start looking into what God is doing new through Jesus. Repent. Or if you don't, I will fulfill the prophecy to become just like the others that were killed, that were speaking on behalf of God. I love what Stephen does right there. It's like totally just like gangster move. He's like, yeah, you repent, or guess what? You fulfill what God has already fulfilled in the past and what I just called you out of. You kill every single person that speaks God's truth. It's like in the background, ain't nothing but against the pot. I just pictured it in my mind, you know. Just total G. Uh, right there. Like I just love Stephen, right? Just like, boom, let me bomb drop this right on you and help you understand, like, you need to turn towards God. And if you don't, and if you put me to death, you're fulfilling the very thing that you hate so much by going against the very thing that history has shown to come true time and time again. I love this section of scripture because you know what it reveals to us today? It reveals that the possibility of idolatry is never too far away. These are people so enveloped into religious culture. These could be our modern-day churchgoers, you know what I'm saying? Like, know how to say the right things, know what to do, like, know the Christianese, like, know the Christian culture, but completely miss it. C can we understand, can we admit that today, that we as human beings are susceptible to make the same mistakes? 
I love this because it kind of levels the playing field. It's like, hey, all you like really historical people that matter to God and matter to God's part in history, but God's doing a new thing, and you, you might miss it. You might actually miss the God of the new thing because you're so attached to the old, once again, right? But the possibility of idolatry is never too far away. We can worship the strangest things, right? So in, in terms of our practicality this morning, I want to ask us a question. Hopefully we can walk away and we can chew on a little bit in terms of how this relates to us today. What idols have you built in your spiritual walk? What idols maybe have you built in your spiritual walk that are creating an obstacle from you and God just having some authentic relationship that he desires? What, what does that look like for you personally this morning? You're like, well, I'm not an idolater. But here's what I know. I don't think the Jewish people thought they were either. In fact, I think they thought they were the chosen one. In fact, I think they thought, we can come up with every excuse, but this morning, come on, with humility, let's just ask ourselves, what, maybe I've created some idols that have caused me to have some obstacles of getting into God's heart. I, maybe I've put up some walls where God's been trying to chase after me, and I've just been lifting those walls up, and, and I haven't been letting him in, right? What do those idols look like? And this morning, I can't help but have this conversation and, and see kind of the parallels of, of, of today. Because I think you can come up with your own personal uh, application to, to, to what idolatry might look like for you and maybe some adjustments you need to make in your life. But I, I see a corporate one as well. I see a corporate one that's, that's related a lot to this conversation. And it has to do with this, where we're sitting. It has to do with these four walls. It has to do with the fact that many of us might have a tendency to want to worship these four walls. The church, right? The church. There's a slide up here. For the Jews during this time, they worshiped the four walls of the temple. But for modern Christians, there's a tendency for us to really miss God's heart when we begin to really consume and have an appetite for the church. And what do I mean by the church, right? I mean by the church as a location. I mean by the church as something that you attend. I mean by the church as something you devour. I mean by the church as something that's there to just kind of like entertain you and give you rhythm to your week. I'm talking about the church that many of us have built in our mind of something that we go to rather than something that we are. Our slogan, like our big, like my big statement that I've challenged us with for our church is be the church. Not a building, right? Assuming that it's not about the building, but it's truly about the people who are in it. I think about what Jesus said. And, and for many of us, there's a tendency of going to, going to, going to. I'm going to church. I'm going to. It's a place that I go. It's going to church. I'm going to attend this. I'm going to do that. Attendance is not bad. But what I'm saying is we can get so lopsided on one say of going to, going to, going to. We forget by the fact what Jesus said to Peter when he confessed as a human being and said, I recognize your Lord. And Jesus said, I will build my rock, or I will build my church upon that rock, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He wasn't like, let me build four walls with a great service script, and this and that, and the gates of hell will not prevail. No, he said, you are the church, Peter, and I'm going to build, based on your confession of faith, I'm going to build my community, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
we're going to do things. There's going to be different methods in order to reach people. But more than anything, we got to recognize and understand this morning that we are the church. We are the church. We can so easily become worshipers of content because all we're doing is consuming, 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 right? But I love it because I was reading something last week, and it talked about biblical spiritual progression, like three general milestones for like a spiritual trajectory in relationship to Christianity. And it was really helpful, it was a really helpful kind of tool. I'm like, oh, I'm going to take that. I took some notes down. And it came up this week when I was studying for this message. That, that first and foremost, come and see. Those who are spiritual seekers, right? That God invites people to come and see. Come and see what God's done. Man, my part is that we would be a church that we encourage people to do that. Come and see. God's up to some amazing things. God's stirring something. God's doing something. God is for you. He's gracious. Some people come with a natural perspective that like, man, God hates me. Or like God's an angry guy with a frown and a toga up in the sky, right? But no, like God actually came to this earth to be with you, to seek you, to, to chase after you, to die for you. To resurrect so that we could give, be given hope even in the light of this death thing that, that, that's kind of looming there in terms of life. No, like that's, that's God. Come and see. Seek him. And then there, there's, there's this decision. Come and follow. The, the decision that Jesus gave to the to, to disciples, right? So come and follow me. People are like, well, I got all this money or I got to, you know. Some people are like, nah, you know, I got to do my thing. And he's like, okay, whatever. And forces it. Some people are like, yeah. I'm leaving my old life because I see this new vision of this new life that you're offering me. They're seeing, they're celebrating, and they're receiving what Jesus did in his ministry as he heals people, as all these exciting things. Man, people's lives are being transformed and changed for the good. And for us, as we come and follow Jesus, we understand in light of the cross and what he did when he died for us. So when we understand, come and follow, we're like, I'm following a God who, who literally died for me. I'm following a God who took care of my past, took care of my mistakes because it was all dealt with on the cross. But it doesn't end there because there's a third milestone in your spiritual walk, and it's this thing called come and die. It's called carrying your own cross. It's called laying your life down for the sake of others in the same way that Jesus did for you. It has less to do with you, your personal salvation experience, but it progresses and it matures in a direction where you're saying, I got it, now I want others to have it. And here's where we can, this is the moment in our spiritual journey where we can get off a little bit. When it comes to the moment of come and die, we can make a decision, the very, very us-centered. My preferences, my church, what we do, my methods, this song. That song, blah, 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 and it misses out on the fact that you're here for somebody else. It represents that you're a part of this community because we are a community that's surrounded upon by the grace and the power of Jesus to come together, put our heads and our hearts together, and make a difference. Because we understand with what we're packing, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When you see hell in your newspaper, when you see hell on the news, when you see hell in the political climate of our nation, understand the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And if it was just some wood built up, that's a terrible plan that God had in store. But it's not about the place. That really is the icing on the cake. It's about the people within the place being stirred by God on a common vision and mission to make a difference in the world. 
What's done in the back row of a church can be done in your back deck. There's a good question that's being asked in our culture today. Why attend church? I attend church because I am the church. I, I see the personal benefit of me being in community, being encouraged by one another, surrounding ourselves upon the word of God. But if it just became about just something we attend and we don't actually ever own up to that we are, we can miss out on what God wants to accomplish. Amen? Why attend church? It's not bad. But if that's it, I'm, I'm afraid we might create an idol of what we think church is. An idol that's going to create an obstacle for us to actually go out and make a difference, to be a multiplier, to be a disciple. Jesus has called us to go. The great commission. When he left, he gave us one mission. He said, go. Make other disciples. I'm like, well, you know. No, no, like, if you've benefited from the cross, if you're a person, you understand the hope that Jesus has given you, he's, he's immediately given you this role in your life to be a disciple maker. But have you engaged with that? Or are we still hanging out on this side of the cross saying, Jesus, you're glorious, but we never get on the other side and understand the resurrection life and power he gives us to be faithful witnesses to change this very world. God has given each and every one of us personally a hope and a mission to go beyond, to go beyond our expectations in terms of sometimes what we create in our mind. Our church, we, we use these family DNA kind of metaphors, right, uh, that I love, and I just want to kind of rephrase this, or not rephrase it, but just kind of remind us of this one, is that we, we want people to move in. And here's the thing, it's like, moving in. Man, when you, first time's the hardest, I always say that, right? We want people to move into this family. Meaning that we want to make sure that that move-in process is an easy one. Moving, man, that, packing up boxes, moving, play, that's like hell on earth, you know what I'm saying? Like, let's just be real. So people need help when they're moving in. So we want to make sure that that's a seamless experience for people to move into this family and become a part of our life cycle and what it means to follow Jesus. But it doesn't just end at moving out and hanging out in the walls of the church, right? It doesn't just end there. There's an expectation that you move in and then you move out because any responsible person in a household doesn't just stay there. If you're children of God, if you're children of his household, you can't stay in mom's basement forever. You can't. You can't freeload off God forever in his house. There's an expectation for you to mature, to grow up, to not only come and follow, but to come and die. Lay yourself down for the rights of others so others will come to know him. But for many of us, we've created church in this idol that gets in the way from us actually coming and dying and sacrificing our preferences, our lives, our time, our family for the sake of what Jesus wants to do. If that's the case, then we've reduced the church down to four walls of something we go to that we haven't actually owned as disciples and disciple makers. Our church has been called to be a home base to send and launch others on the other side of the cross. That's what this place is built for. It's to believe in people's individual lives, to call everybody up to leadership, to understand if you're breathing and living on this earth and you got the grace of Jesus, you got everything and fear can maybe be the only thing that's holding you back. But we are not slaves to fear today. We are leaders in our own right, called to come and die, lay our lives down, and serve the needs of other people. God is on mission, and that is what God is doing. But as I plead for you this morning, in the same way Stephen pleaded with those he was on trial with, we can so easily miss it and convince ourselves 
we get to be called really good cultural, what I call cultural Christians, that know all about Christianity, but don't actually lay our lives down for anybody. What's particularly unique about the local church is the power that is released when people are aligned around a common mission, vision, and strategy. When we gather in community and intentionally together with a plan to impact our community and to change our world, what we'll realize really quickly when we get all together, we throw our gifts on the table, we say we're going to do this thing, we're going to be the church, not a building, we realize really quickly how effective it is when you get human beings together saying, I'm in. I'm willing to lay my life down so that we can serve anybody and everybody. Amen? And we'll get to a place where we can expand reach people who are different than us, right? We can expand. That series title, Expansion. We're going to reach people who are different than us. So I just want to ask that question one more time at the end of it. What idols have you built in your spiritual walk? It might look something personal to you, or there might be something in terms of the corporate responsibility as the church of saying, hey, where have I missed it? Where am I not on mission? Where have I let the traditional obstacles get in the way? Maybe the voice of the enemy saying, well, you know, it's your time's up. When, when God's saying, as long as you're breathing, you're called to be a disciple and a disciple maker. Now get on mission. Continue to move forward into God's plan and his way. What idols have you built in your spiritual walk? For the Jews, it was the temple. The temple robbed them from knowing God. They took advantage of the fact that God was with them. As long as this thing's with me, as long as this temple, as long as my hope is placed in this geographical place, it caused them to be susceptible to miss the living, active, breathing God who is not limited to space any longer. But we live in a new age where God said, the temple, the veil was born, or broken too, torn in two. And as the Bible says, that as we receive Jesus, we become the very temples of the Holy Spirit. And what are good temples that just stay in one place? But we are temples that have been sent to expand, to go outward, to be go beyond our comfort zones, and to understand that together we are better and we can accomplish anything. Are you with me this morning, church, as we commit to that?